This is Sam Walker, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader, the GOAT of all podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkus.com slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Sam Walker, and I'm an author. I'm also a newspaper guy. I work for the Wall Street Journal, where I'm the deputy editor of the Enterprise Group. Uh, and that's the unit that oversees the investigative reporting of the paper and the sort of long-term feature projects uh, that go on the front page. Uh, I am from Michigan. I went to the University of Michigan, uh, and I live in New York City. I've been here for about 20 years, and I have a couple of kids uh, and I live in Manhattan, and whenever I can, I try to ride my bike to the office without getting run over by a bus. Hmm. Or, or breaking out into a fight with some other uh, <laughs> ro- rollerblader, skateboarder, bicyclist, sure. exactly. driver, whatever. But you're right. I saw zombies on their phones walking into my path as well. Yeah. There you go. Well, it's so interesting. What you left out from that is a uh, two-time national champion fantasy baseball player. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I, I played in Tout Wars, which is sort of the national championship of fantasy baseball. I wrote a book about playing this competition for the first time and uh, wind up winning it twice, including, I will say, winning by the largest margin in the history of the competition. So there you go. No, that is braggable. That is pretty awesome. <laughs> you so? Do you okay. get like a ring too, like like real baseball <laughs> players get or – no, yeah. the funny thing about this competition, why I thought it was so fun and wanted to try it, was that there's absolutely no prize. There's no trophy. There's no money. There's nothing. It's all bragging rights. And you know, all the titans of the fantasy baseball industry, all the best analysts with the biggest followings, all play each other. And it's really just about winning. And there's really no other material uh, reward for it. That's a shame. You should buy. You should buy yourself a ring or something like that. <laughs> I will. Right? Yeah. Um, so. We're, we're here on the occasion to talk about a different book and a different experience. I just think it's interesting because it shows the depth of the analytical approach you've taken to a lot of sports in general. And then ironically, the way that that sort of pivots off into to other areas of your life. We're, we're here to discuss a totally different book, which is The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. And right away, what I think is interesting about this book is that you opened with the Everest of sports analogies. And in, in my mind, you could do the same thing with, with businesses that you can do with sports teams, which is everybody always argues about who are the greatest ones, 
right? And then, right. you know, you're, I mean, you want to solve the problem of what are the greatest ones have in common. You first have to solve the problem of who are the greatest ones, period. Exactly. And I thought that wouldn't be so difficult. I thought, you know, I set out to do this. I thought it would take me a couple of weeks to round up these great teams because they must be obvious. But I realized that they just absolutely were not. And that was a huge undertaking. I mean, to backtrack a little bit, I started this because I was always obsessed with great teams. I, I was, I, I covered a lot of elite teams and wondered what made them great. And, you know, actually when I finished the last book, the, during the last book, I, I spent a lot of time with the 2004 Boston Red Sox. And, you know, that was a team that seemed to be left for dead in July. Uh, didn't seem like they had greatness at all. And then all of a sudden in August turned the corner and became this formidable team that just played with the swagger. Um, and, and that really raised the question for me, what is it that provides that spark of transformation on a team? What is it that makes a team go from being good to being great? And that's where I started. So I thought two weeks, I'll write a column for the Wall Street Journal, you know, uh, and, and I'll be out of this. But it turned into the biggest rabbit hole I've ever gone down. Hmm. Yeah. And so, all right. So and in the end, if, if I'm being honest, and this will matter later, because when we talk about a couple different instance, instances, we'll have to separate in the end, if, if I can just be brutally honest, you kind of took a cop out because you ended up with two lists, right? Like here are the right. undisputed tier one greatest teams, yeah. but then here's tier two. Here's all of these other teams. And I, I don't want to get into all of the data behind how you said on this because I want to get to the lessons, but yeah. I think it's important to distinguish that even in trying to do the argument, you still have to be like, well, okay, there's this kind of great and then there's great, great. And we have to greatest of all time versus great, if you will. Yeah, no, that was the problem. So I, I had I looked at every single winning team in the history of sports all over the world since the 1880s in 37 different categories of sports. And there were thousands and thousands of these teams. So I had to come up with some really tough criteria to whittle them down. And really, in the end, you know, I did get a list of 16 teams that I believe are unambiguously outstanding with no question. There's absolutely no questioning their greatness. Uh, but there were all these other teams, there were 108 other teams that had a really strong argument to be included, even though they didn't quite make my threshold. So I decided to have a tier one and a tier two. And, the, and those uh, 16 teams went tier one and the other 108 went in tier two. You know, and, and I have to say, you know, as I started looking at them and I started looking for patterns and things they had in common, I realized that there's really not much difference between tier one and tier two. The great tier two teams really were set up the same way and I think ran on the same basic uh, principles. Well, and you know, one of the things that I found interesting that at least at the very least it seemed more present in team two, but really uh, across both tiers was proven is I was expecting the, the biggest thing I was expecting from the, the book was that coaching would play a role. And of course it's not called the coaching class. It's called the captain class, which <laughs> is indicative that a different type of leadership was actually what mattered. And I think that's weird because we, at, at least when sports tends to cross over into business, nonfiction, leadership, etc., it's usually the coach. It's about Phil Jackson. It's about um, Bob Stoops. I'm an OU fan. I'm trying to remember uh, Michigan here. I probably shouldn't have said that after you said you're a Michigan back, fan. I know, right? Exactly. Yeah, right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's about all of these um, coaches uh, you know, wooden, et cetera. But we never really dive in and see, I mean, one, your data shows, nah, maybe not so much. Um, but two, we never dive into the the leaders who are actually on the pitch. 
That's right. No, and I had no idea this is where I was heading. I mean, leadership, internal leadership of the team was really one of the last things I, I would have considered because, you know, I, I thought like you, coaching, number one. And then if it wasn't that, I figured they had an abundance of talent or they all had incredible strategies or, or they had a lot of money. But in the end, there was none of those things were common among these 16 teams. In fact, you know, some of them had two coaches during their run, or they had lousy coaches, or they had coaches who had no experience, you know, and some were not anywhere near the most talented teams in the history of their sports. And, you know, really the only thing that was uh, constant was that the beginning and the end of their streak corresponded almost precisely with the presence of one player. So that was the first surprise. But the next surprise was that that player was in every case, the captain of the team or the leader of the team. And that was uh, a kind of mind-altering revelation for me. I realized that, you know, like a lot of people, I guess I've been kind of brainwashed into thinking that coaches are uh, the place to go to look for leadership in sports. But really, you know, I want to make one thing clear, though. A great team needs a lot of things, you know, in order to be great. But uh, it needs talent. It needs a coach. It, need, it needs a combination that works. But the only thing it absolutely has to have to sustain greatness over a long period of time is a certain kind of leader. Yeah. Well, and it's weird to me because so not only do we have the idea that, OK, it's not necessarily the coach, it's actually the captain. But then it's also this idea that the captain is not usually the best player on the team, right? They're usually, I mean, I think you use the term carrying water, but they're usually leading from the middle um, or even the back. And again, that flies in the face of, I think, a lot of leadership literature and business conventional wisdom, the idea that you're, you're a talented salesperson, so we're going to make you a sales manager, or you're a great journalist, we're going to make you an, an editor over charge people. And that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes the best leaders are the ones that aren't the purest raw talent. And it's actually better if you can have the talented person and then the captain as two different entities. That's right. No, absolutely correct. And, you know, that was another thing that just completely turned my assumptions upside down. So I, I went into this thinking, first of all, I realized that I got into my mid-40s and I never really thought about if I was in a tough fight and I, and I had to choose a, a leader to lead me on a team, who would it be and why? You know, and I, I realized I would have chosen someone with great talent. You know, one of the, probably the best person on the team. I would have chosen someone with incredible charisma and and you know a way with words and and a, and a kind of celebrity aura about them, and someone who was very diplomatic and diffused conflict inside the team. And all the things that I thought or would have imagined were completely different with this list of captains. It just was amazing to me. I mean, look, I hadn't heard a lot of them. I'd heard of the teams, but I had no idea who they were. I didn't even know they were the captains. And you know, they were not the superstars. You know, a few of them could qualify as superstars, but the vast majority of them were, as you said, water carriers. They played in supporting roles. Um, they did. They were mostly defensive players. They played in the shadows. They did a lot of thankless grunt work uh, on their teams. And you know what? They didn't have much charisma at all. They were none of them gave speeches. They weren't speech makers. And they um, didn't like celebrity. They didn't want attention. In fact, they all shunned individual accolades. Bill Russell turned down the Hall of Fame, for example. They didn't want to be part of it because it wasn't a team honor. And they all really got uncomfortable being singled out from, from the team. So, you know, it was completely different than what I was expecting. Well, and you know, the, the, one of the examples that really intrigued me the most was uh, you were talking about Pele. And the idea that, you know, unquestionably one of the greatest soccer players of all time – 
And he deliberately rejected the captain's role. And he, I mean, said it from a position of, you know, you could argue leadership because his, his idea was sort of like, well, look, I'm the superstar. And so if I'm there uh, and I'm the captain, then there's only one person on the team who the refs admire, who, the, who can interact with the referees, the other team, et cetera. But if there's two, if there's a captain and then me, then we have an advantage over our opposing teams because there are two different roles, two people to interact with the refs, the public, everything else. And you know, I don't, I don't think we often think about that. We think about, um, I mean, obviously you need the, the star and the captain to get along, but often if, they're, if we feel like they're the same person, so we're going to pr- promote them, we don't think about what damage that does to the team. Brazil is such a great example of that because, you know, I went down there thinking, okay, Pelé, right? I mean, they're one of the greatest players of all time. And the team, the Brazilian team that that I chose was the 58 to 62 team that won back-to-back World Cups. And this was in, in the middle of this golden era of of uh, soccer in Brazil. So, but I was stunned that I thought Pele was the captain. He wasn't the captain. And I asked him about that and he gave me that response and said he had never wanted to be the captain. And so I sat down with Carlos Alberto, who was the captain of the great 1970 team. And he was the only captain who was still alive. And he told me the story and he said, in Brazil, there's so much pressure on the superstar to perform, and you need that person to perform at an incredible level. So there's no way they can also take on the responsibility of unifying a team, especially in Brazil. Brazil is this polyglot nation with you know people from all kinds of different social classes, ethnic backgrounds, uh, education levels. It's a very difficult place to unify a team. So they understood that those were separate roles. So the captain of that team was this guy named Hilderaldo Bellini. And Bellini was a perfect specimen of what I'm talking about. His entire career with Brazil, he never scored a single goal. And, you know, he's basically a central defender. He was basically a tackling dummy, you know, for the other team's uh, forwards. And, you know, he, he broke ankles. He broke shin bones. He broke collar. I mean, he, he was constantly getting beat up. He didn't want any attention. He didn't want any of the celebrity. And he didn't – he stayed behind the scenes and served the team, a classic water carrier, you know, who was happy to be forgotten. And, you know, and we all think of Brazil as a land of great soccer impresarios. But what I realized was – of those three Brazilian teams, they had three different captains, none of whom were stars, none of whom were Pelé. They had kind of figured out that that's the model that works. So really, Brazil's not the land of soccer gods. It's the land of great captains, which was something that really surprised me. Yeah, you know, you mentioned something interesting in there, too, in, in by way of a sort of a small pivot, because you mentioned all of the injuries. And that's <laughs> injuries seem to be a common theme. I mean, I know we're talking about sports. But a common theme because of the demonstration of sort of doggedness among a lot of these captains, too. I mean, I remember there's an example of the um, the Soviet Union hockey team. The, the team captain had a heart attack in the middle of play. <laughs> At one point, he kept going. And then you've got rugby and the All Blacks and the guy who, I mean, I don't even want to go into what his injury was because it makes me squirm. Um, and <laughs> Is it? I mean, and to some extent, is it? Is it just this? I started to wonder if it's the idea that, like, so water carrying is one thing, but the ability to just sort of take all of the the flack that the world gives you, right? All of the absorb, all of the the damage, and keep moving, sort of motivates everybody else. That no, we can obviously keep moving because if he's that messed up and he's still on the field, I don't have an excuse. <laughs> It's true. No, that was so. All right. One rule was this willingness to do thankless jobs in the shadows. But there are two rules that apply to what you're talking about. One is this extreme doggedness and focus and competition, no matter what happens. And the other is this ironclad emotional control 
that they that they exhibited during their careers. So the relentlessness. Now, I mean with a capital R. They played not only played through hideous, unimaginable injuries in some cases, um, but you know they just continued to play hard no matter what. Carlos Puyol from Barcelona, who was the captain of that great Barcelona team in the um, late two thousands, uh, he was so relentless that even if they were winning ten to nothing. You know, his teammates would laugh because he's running around like it's the Champions League final. You know, he's not relenting for a minute. And he was the same way, uh, win or lose, this kind of unshakable uh, effort on the field. And uh, the, other, the other side of that was, was this emotional control. And it's something I think is really underrated, not just in sports, but in business. But they, these captains were able to shove aside some of the most uh, – tragic, unimaginably difficult personal circumstances and to continue to play not just well, but at an incredibly high level. Uh, one of the captains that I that I always focus on uh, is Jerome Fernandez, who is the captain of the French men's handball team, which you've never heard of, but is the greatest team in the history of that sport by far. He, right before the world championship final, he got a call from his mother who told him his father was dying of cancer and had three days to live. So he faced this wrenching decision, what do I do? He had just become captain. He was really worried uh, about the team. So he decided not only to stay and play, but he also decided not to tell any of his teammates what was going on. And he not only played well, he scored the clinching goal uh, to win this game, which they were not favored to win. And then he collapsed on the court and sobs, and his teammates had no idea what was going on. But that's an example. To be able to, to play through that and put that aside for the good of the team – is really remarkable, and they all exhibited that control and the ability to realize when their emotions were not helping the team and just shut them off and continue to, to do to play their role. Well, and not not just shutting off emotion because there's a, there's you, you, there's a chapter about sort of the use of emotion too is understanding. I mean, it's like whole team emotional intelligence and understanding when is the time to leverage emotions of excitement to get them psyched up to perform a haka, for example. Um, And and it's, so it's not just compartmentalizing emotion. It's also knowing how to sort of like transfer the right emotion to the rest of the team too. Exactly. No, they had, they had the other side of that was that they understood that, that, Nonverbal communication was a powerful tool. And, you know, research has shown over and over again, uh, not only that high effort is contagious, but also that, uh, you know, emotional display, emotions, we're all wired together. Our brains are wired together and we're wired to recognize strong emotions in other people. And leaders who are able to leverage that interconnectedness can have a real strong impact on a team, you know, for good and for bad. Uh, but in their cases, they always seemed at the right moment when the team was flagging and things were really at a critical stage, they would do something. And sometimes it seemed like unhinged behavior or just really kind of off the wall. You know, and sometimes it was it was as simple as just staring very deeply into people's eyes. But they all had their methods. Intuitively, they knew that there were ways to reach their team and to draw potential out of people that had nothing to do with giving a speech or talking. Well, and sometimes it involves punching Alex Rodriguez in the face. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and sometimes they were unsportsmanlike things like that. You know, that's an example that I love. But yeah, no, they did really kind of unhinged things. In fact, this uh, uh, Sid Coventry, who was the captain of this great Australian rules football team that I looked at, um, you know, he, you know, his teammates were always confused because at these critical moments, he would just run bowl over a bunch of the 
players from the other team for no reason and risk a, a foul. But he kind of understood that sometimes you just have to show people the emotion that's burning inside you because it's contagious and it rubs off on them. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Now, you can't like in a in a in an office environment, in an organizational environment, you can't just sort of like that manager <laughs> that everybody hates run up and punch them so that your team can win the World Series. Um, but but I'm curious about what I mean. You, you wrote this book over a long period of time while you maintained um, a job at the Wall Street Journal, managing projects, overseeing investigative reports, etc. Like, um, I'm curious what lessons sort of you personally started driving through as you're writing this, and you started applying to your own everyday work. So many. I mean, it really made me completely reconsider not just my own management, but the bosses I've had in the past and why they, were, why they weren't effective. So you mentioned the, 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 that punching someone is not obviously something you can do in the workplace, but I realized that there is um, added, your, your attitude and, your, and the way that you um, express yourself through body language uh, in the office, I think is very important. And I, my advice to people in a business setting is like, imagine it has to be natural. What we've learned about body language and communication is that there's no right way to, uh, there's no right method. It really has to fit with who you are. It has to seem genuine to the people around you. So I would urge everyone, I started doing this thinking, what is the most turbocharged version of yourself? And I realized that for me, it's just enthusiasm, humor, and like a, a sort of like upbeat, positive attitude. And, and so you can turn that on. I think it has the same effect. And I, I've definitely been much more conscious of you know, uh, how I'm coming across and what kind of energy I'm putting out. You know, a couple of other things that I think have, have really informed my uh, work life. Um, one is the, his communication. And this is something that I did not understand at all. Like a lot of people, I thought that the best way to motivate a team is a big speech or some sort of like grand gesture. But what I realized is that um, there's another way to communicate. And that the best way to communicate, and there's a lot of research that backs this up, is something that I saw in two of these captains, Yogi Berra and Tim Duncan, who if you know them, you know, the idea that they were great communicators is kind of laughable because <laughs> both of them are, you know, Yogi was kind of a mumbler and Tim Duncan is, you know, seems to have a personality of a, you know, a doorknob, you know, he's a very uh, passionless guy in, in public. But what they did was they circulated widely among their teams they were comfortable approaching everyone and they talked to everybody individually in very concentrated bursts and listened as much as they talked. And, you know, research has shown that the best performing teams have someone like this in their midst, who, who they call a charismatic connector. It's not that that person is charismatic. It's the fact that they're, they create this sense inside the team that everyone can talk, everyone can have their say, and then all problems will be addressed in the moment and nothing will be left to fester. Uh, social safety is another way of describing that. But that's something all these captains did. They weren't speech makers. They, they used this pattern of communication. And I learned a lot from that. I really realized that, that those little conversations that you have day in and day out, you need to put energy into them and you need to listen as, as much as you talk. Well, that energy piece is so critical because I feel like, at, le at least in the United States, and I'm, I'm willing to bet it's this way in the majority of sort of the Western developed world, we tend to brag on our busyness, on how drained we are, on how little sleep we have, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we, we feel like that is how we, I don't know if it's how we one-up each other, or but it's it's become this sort of default of how we communicate 
usually in organizations. And you know, th- I mean, a, a lot of what's in the book suggests no, we, we need to actually really be doing the exact opposite. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we're going to end up bragging about, man, I got nine hours of sleep last night. I'm so jacked, right? But but paying attention to to our own energy level, but then also how we're communicating whether or not we have or don't have energy, I think is a huge point. No, it's a huge point. You know, the other part of energy is something that um, I thought was really interesting about these captains. So they um, they were very they did they were aggressive. I mean, they played right to the edge of the rules, and they were relentless in competition. And you know, they were they never shied away from conflict either. And they would introduce conflict inside the team. They would never do it in a personal way. It was always about improving the task and the task at hand. But the thing that was amazing to me was that they might do thuggish things in competition or things that were not really necessarily admirable. Um, but off the field, you know, this is, I think, a good lesson for people that are hiring. I don't think you think enough about what people are like when they're away from the office. And all of these captains, these great team leaders, uh, off the field were incredibly quiet. I mean, they never got in trouble. They got a lot of sleep. They were not interested in nightlife. They were really pretty boring off the field. And, you know, that was something that was consistent throughout the whole group. And I think that, you know, if you're looking for someone who's a really a dedicated team lead, I mean, I think we're always looking for someone who, oh, they're a triathlete and they collect vintage Porsches and they, you know, and they and they travel, they're 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 trying to travel to every different continent. You know, and we think of those as like signs that someone is really like an interesting, well-rounded person. But, you know, I think we might be better served by, you know, not being turned off by the person that's kind of like, I don't know, I go home and play with my dog, you know, or I go home and I, you know, I get a lot of sleep and I I hang out with my family. I don't know. I'm very interesting. And that's not a bad thing. I think, you know, people who can serve energy outside the work environment, you know, have more to dedicate to the goals of the team. Or, or even just people who are like, well, I just, I go back and I continue to work. I keep thinking, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to glorify the overachievers, et cetera, but like, you know, the people who have the boring lives in, in sports, I think have it because the being on the field is their life, you know? And I've always felt like, uh, you know, I come from, uh, Philly originally and you have sort of the, the Allen Iversons of the world who you sometimes start to wonder like, okay, you're great, but I think you like being popular more than you like this game, right? And it's the people who love the game that are make these great sort of captains. In the same way, I think you could do that around the business too. I you like, I mean, I almost hate to do this, but like this is the end story of the entire arc of the American version of The Office, right? That Dwight deserves to be the manager because this Dunder Mifflin is what Dwight lives, right? <laughs> yeah, no, to some extent, I mean, it's hard because I think these... I think these people have a lot of emotional intelligence. They just have a good sense about people. All right, that's, and Dwight totally yeah. does not. So that's Dwight fair. With that's emotional to- intelligence. But, but yeah. we're talking about the passion for the craft, right? <laughs> right. No, and that's the thing. I mean, I think the the thing that we often, you know, if someone asked me a fascinating question after a talk that I gave earlier this week, and they said, "How do we reward people like this when we have them? What do? How do we? You know, if you, if you want to incentivize them to continue doing what they're doing, what do we do?" And I, I was really, I'd never really thought of that before. And, you know, the thing is, the last thing they want is lavish praise. You know, they, and the last thing they want is some big showy thing where you hand them an award or something. That's not what they want. The goals, if the team is meeting its goals and the team is successful, that's their satisfaction. Now, that's not to say that you don't need to reward them. Uh, these captains, in a lot of cases, to my surprise, really pushed back when they felt they were, weren't being paid right or 
something unfair was happening. They want they they wanted to be treated fairly and to know that their contributions were being recognized. So I, I finally said to this guy, you know what I would do? I would just walk over and very quietly hand him a piece of paper with a number on it and say, you know, we gave you a raise. You know, you're doing a great job and really appreciate it. You know, and walk away. Because the thing is, like, you know, that's that's they don't need a show. They don't need anything tangible. They just need to know, you know well, I say tangible in like an award or some sort of public, you know, announcement. They just need you know, to be recognized and to feel like they're being treated fairly. But, you know, really, they get their satisfaction from the team's success. And, you know, that's why a lot of them have quiet lives off the field. You know, they have a family and they have their work and, and they they find happiness in both of them. That's that's enough. Yeah. So, you know, that's interesting because that was going to be one of my questions. So now I'll scratch that one out. Um, but that, that brings <laughs> me to, the, to my next question. Let's, let's not put the cart before the horse. How do you find these people right so you're you're let's say you're the team manager i mean the lesson of this if you're leading a team is that there's you and your role but there's also got to be sort of a captain somebody who's in the ranks that you can also see as a leadership figure how do you identify who that person is well the first thing you have to do as a manager who's hiring a team lead is to look in the mirror and to really think about you and your leadership style and how you lead because what I found, and here's the thing about coaches, I mean, I, we kind of ragged on them early in the um, broadcast, but I mean, they do matter, and they matter immensely. And what I found is that the most effective coaches, we're talking about Belichick, Alex Ferguson, Greg Popovich, Phil Jackson, um, Vince Lombardi. Bob, all, Bob Stoops. Bob Stoops. Bob, Bob Stoops, <laughs> definitely. And Bo Schembechler, of course. Um, all the... <laughs> <laughs> all, I'm sorry, we should have stayed on yeah, point with that, but okay. Uh, um, well, all of these great coaches, it's funny. Like you look at them, they they actually when they had their peaks of success, they came as part of a twin set. Popovich had Duncan, um, Alex Ferguson had Roy Keane, Belichick has Brady, um, Vince Lombardi had Willie Davis, his great defensive captain. So here's the thing: you need to find someone to be the leader of that team who you're comfortable having a partnership with. And I'm not talking about, you know, you're the boss and they're the underling. I'm talking, it's more like an old married couple. You know, you need to bicker. You need to, to, you need to have a captain who's not always going to do exactly what you want, but it's going to look at what you want and what they think he thinks the team is capable of and what the opponent's doing and make adjustments. And that's what all of those captains in those situations were able to do. So as a manager, you have to find, the first thing is to find someone you can work with who has these qualities um, and, and accept the fact that you're going to give up a little bit of control to this person. So then the task comes, the big job is to identify the right person. So it's hard. And the first thing is, you know, everyone looks to, uh, someone who has God given skills like uh, talent or charisma, or just looks like the leaders, the person you would, you would pick out if you just walked into the rooms, that's gotta be the leader loudest voice in the room, right? Well, that's not what you want. So what you have to do is just recalibrate the way that you evaluate people in a group setting. And I would say, this sounds crazy, but I would say, okay, if I was coming into this team from the outside and I didn't know who the leader was, who's the last person I would pick as the likely leader? Start there and work your way up. Don't go the other way because you know the most obvious person is not the, the right call. I think you'll get to the answer faster if you do it that way. The other thing is if you're in an interview with somebody, this is a great test. 
you know, look at their resume and just start lavishing praise on them. This is, you know, what you did must be amazing. You must have incredible leadership talent. You must have really pulled that team through. If they're not squirming and a little awkward about it and trying to lay off the credit on, on their team, you've probably got the wrong person because that's the kind of thing that will make these people uncomfortable. So once you've done that, like you, you, you have to remember that you're not going to figure this out in a job interview because these seven traits in the end are not about God-given talent. They're about behavior and how someone behaves in a group setting. So if you have any chance to see them in a group setting and watch them interact with other people or talk to their references and figure out uh, what they were like in a group setting. How did they communicate with people? You know, did they did they often stand apart and 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 take unpopular positions? Did they were they relentless? Were they willing to do grunt work? Those are the kinds of things that you need to ask. And I think you know, once you start to hear the right answers and hear positive answers on all those fronts, then you're probably zeroing in on the right person. I like it. That's really solid advice. And and really, I mean, so honestly, that's a great place um, to leave it, which is we we've gone through all of the research to suggest that, you know, the captains more so than coaches even are, are vital for well-performing teams and also how to find one. So if you want to dive further on that, I encourage you to check out the captain class. Uh, in the meantime, though, Sam, we ask all of our guests the same five questions. So we're pivoting from the book to you. Um, I know that that's not in line with the research on captains, but I do have to ask you to talk about yourself. Okay. <laughs> yes. So no, I try not to anymore because that, I know it's not captain class behavior. But, right. Um, yeah. Wow. Totally. <laughs> um, <laughs> our, so our first question: What's the best advice you've ever received? Show up. <laughs> That's good. Seriously, show up. Just show up. You know, all these times we think, you know, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't want to go. Just show up. You, you know, know it's, if it's a question, just go. My my dad always used to do the Woody Allen line, right? That eighty yeah. percent of success is just showing up consistently. Yeah. You know, yeah. I like it. Um, so you know, you you've got a lot of flexibility in in your work and writing uh, books, but also leading the investigative unit, et cetera. What's an ideal work day look like for you? We know when that I, it starts with riding a bike. I know uh, that, but yeah, yeah no, yeah, no. All right, so <laughs> I'm up at you know. And I'm going to, this is a little on the grueling side, but I, you know, I'm up at five, five thirty. you know, I get on my bike, I ride to the office, I work from about six, six thirty till about nine. Um, and then, you know, the best days we have a great story, just something really like a bombshell. And, you know, it's really fun because it's such an energy in the newsroom and everyone gathers around and we're all working on you know, the packaging and, and the production of the story at the same time. And then it hits and, you know, it's just a wild ride when you have a big story. It's just really this adrenaline rush. It's so much fun. And, you know, that powers you through your day and just, you know, keeps you going. And, you know, the, the rest of the day, then I really like to devote it to just reading proposals and talking to reporters about stories they're working on and trying to get ahead of, get ahead of things. And then, you know, ideally, you know, I'd go out with some friends and, and you know, go to a nice restaurant and, and have a great meal and, and uh, do the New York thing and then and then come home and collapse into bed. Do the New York thing. You mean getting stuck on a subway car? Right. Or yeah, I, no. What's yeah, the right. New York thing? Well, no, I, you know. Just, no, I know what you mean. Because, you know, we all have small apartments and, you know, we all like to be out, you know, late into the night because it's uh, it's just sort of, you know, a, a nice thing to do we do most of our socializing during the week which is a little different the weekends 
you know, when New Yorkers tend to sort of shut down and crash a little bit. So uh, we try to pack it all in for those long days. There you go. Um, what are you reading right now? Uh, you know, I just got back from Italy and I uh, was on vacation with my family and I uh, bought a, a few different books about Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, I know there's a big uh, biography coming out on him, but, uh, but you know, I just, I realized I didn't know a lot about him and I've always been fascinated by by him because he was such a, um, a rare creature and had, had was such a polymath and had so many different interests. And, you know, that's something that I wanted to seek a little bit because, you know, I feel like I have a lot, I mean, pulled in a lot of different directions and sometimes, uh, you know, it affects, it, it affects everything sort of suffers for it. And, and it was good for me to read a lot about the way that he, you know, his painting commissions and his, uh, scientific explorations often clashed and, and he was, you know, also really struggling for time. I'm not putting myself on par th- with him, but, uh, but I was, it was good to see that even, you know, back then it was tough to, to have a lot of different interests competing. Yeah, totally. Um, what do you believe that most people don't? Um, privacy, you know, I really, I really believe in privacy and, and, you know, not saying the thing that you're thinking about saying. I mean, I feel, I think a lot of people agree with me, but I, I think in, in the social media era and this um, kind of confessional moment that we're in, I just feel like it's really difficult to do that and to to guard that and to not get swept up in this culture of sharing everything and, you know, not having to take, you know, s- selfies everywhere you go and, and having to record and document your life in a way. I think, um, Quiet contemplation and privacy is underrated. So I shouldn't be taking a selfie of myself talking to you on no. Skype right now. Shoot. No. Darn it. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. In, in an always-on, always-online world, I definitely hear you. Um, so our final question, I feel like we've spent most of the our time answering this question to some extent, but we'll ask it in a simpler, easier form. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I think it's a combination of humility um, and courage, courage to stand apart and to um, do unpopular things. And I think it's um, the third thing would, would really be communication. You know, I think it's, I think the, the willingness to hear people and listen and talk and, and think and really um, take in as much as you put out. I think that's those are the three top characteristics for me. I like it. That's good. There are a few others. Most of them are written about in the captain class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest team. So highly encourage people uh, to check that book out uh, to find out more and to learn why uh, Brady is probably the bigger deal than Belichick, et cetera. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thanks, David. It was great fun. Thanks for having me. 